Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Crossfire Faith and Gaming. During our Lenten season, we are doing a devotional every week with uh, my father, Reverend Steve Petty. Uh, I did not upload last week's uh, Lenten devotional because I was just behind and then my father actually got in a bicycling accident, uh, ruptured his kidney and was in the hospital for a few days. So that totally changed my schedule, but now we're back up and running with a uh, weeks three and four of this Lenten devotional series. So I hope you enjoy as he tells the story from the perspective of Peter through the gospel of Mark, and then asks some deep devotional questions. So here is week four uh, of the Lenten devotional. And if you missed week three, make sure you go back and listen to that. Walk with Jesus, Class 4, Tuesday of Holy Week. Tuesday of Holy Week is a long day. The readings and the discussions are lengthy. To help you listen, I've broken the passage into shorter sections and provided the scriptural notation, followed by an introductory header for each segment. I hope this is helpful to the listener. Mark 11, 20-26 the lesson from the withered fig tree. The next morning we were astounded to see the fig tree as we walked back to Jerusalem. I said to Jesus, Look, Rabbi, the poor fig that you cursed has died. Jesus looked right at me and said, Why are you surprised, Peter? Have faith in God, and anything you ask of him will be granted. If you truly believe... Then you could even cause a mountain to crumble into the sea. If you ask God for it and truly believe it, you will receive it. Then he stopped and looked at all of us and said, But before you pray, if you harbor any ill will against anyone, you must forgive them completely in your heart so that God can forgive you for your sins too. Because if you are not willing to forgive others, your Father in heaven may not be so eager to forgive your failings. Mark 11, 27-33 The Question About Authority The next day we came to Jerusalem again, and as we were walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes said upon him at once, By what authority do you act like this? Jesus said to them, I've got a question for you, too. If you answer mine, I will answer yours. Who gave John the authority to baptize, God or man? Answer well, and I will answer you. This threw them into a big argument, and they thought through it this way. If we say that God gave John the authority, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But we can't publicly say that he was merely a man with no authority, because all the people thought John was a great prophet. So they came back and said, We don't know. Jesus replied, If you don't know, then I can't tell you where my authority comes from to act as I do. Mark 12, 1-12, The Parable of the Wicked Tenants Jesus then shared some parables with everyone. 
A man had a large vineyard, which he took great care of, building a high fence around it and a tall watchtower, and it had its own wine press. He entrusted this vineyard to others and gave them a lease. Then he went far away to live. After a season, he sent a servant to collect his part of the produce and the wine sales. But the tenants, figuring the owner was a long way away, beat up the servant and threw him out of the vineyard with nothing. The owner, not believing this could have happened to the servant, sent another servant who suffered even worse abuse. When he sent a third servant, the tenants killed him. In time, he sent many more and all were abused and many killed, but the tenants would not share in their abundance. Finally, only the owner's beloved son was left. So he sent him figuring, they will respect my son. He has my authority. But the tenants had begun to think they had a right to the vineyard. So they plotted, look, this is the son. If he dies, we can inherit everything. So they killed him and threw his body out of the vineyard. Now, what do you think the owner will do to these evil tenants? I'll tell you that much. He will come and throw them out of the vineyard and entrust it to others. Maybe you have heard the scripture? The stone rejected by the builders will become a keystone. God's hand will do this, and it is wonderful to witness. The priest would have arrested Jesus right then, because they realized the story was about them, but the crowds were with Jesus, so they simply slipped away. Mark 12, 13-17, Paying Tribute to Caesar The Pharisees and some Herodians decided to try to get Jesus to say something which might be used against him, so they sent some people to trap him. They asked him, Teacher, we know you are honest and true and not swayed by public opinion or outward appearances, so you teach in a godly way. Do you think it is lawful to pay a tribute to Caesar? What should a devout Jew do about this? Jesus knew that they didn't care at all about being devout Jews, so he said to them, Oh, I get it. This is a test. I'll tell you what. Have you got a Daenerys? Let me see it. So they gave him the coin, and he held it up for them to see. Then he asked them, Whose image and name are on this coin? They all said, Caesar's. So he flipped the coin back to them, saying, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Then give to God the things that are God's. They didn't know what to think about that. Mark 12, 18-27 Questions about the resurrection Then the Sadducees, who claimed there is no life after death, came to test him, asking, Rabbi, it is a teaching of Moses that if a man dies, leaving his wife without children, his brother must marry her in order to provide an heir. Now, there are seven brothers, and the eldest marries a woman, but dies, leaving her childless. The second marries her and also dies without producing a child. So too the third and on down through the seventh, and none of them produce a child. Then, finally, the woman dies. When they are raised from the dead, when the resurrection comes, which will be her husband, since she has slept with all seven? Jesus almost smiled as he said, Well, 
Not only is your answer wrong, you even got the question wrong. You don't understand Moses or heaven. When people rise, they are no longer married at all. They are individuals like the angels of heaven. And you don't understand life and death. For in God, there is no death. Remember how God spoke to Moses from the burning bush? God said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He did not say, I was, but I am. Because God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. And they are still alive. And you are totally wrong. Mark 12, 28-34 The Great Commandment There was a scribe nearby who listened to Jesus debating and observed how well Jesus had presented his case. And now he came forward and asked his own questions. Which commandment is first above all others? Jesus answered, This commandment is first. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you must love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. There is a second one, and it is this. You must love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. These are the greatest commandments. The scribe replied to Jesus, Well spoken, Master. It is true that these are the greatest, that God is one and there is no other, and we must love God with all of our being, our heart, our understanding, and strength, and we must love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. This is much more important than any sacrifice we could make at the temple. This impressed Jesus, for the scribe showed real wisdom. Jesus said to him, You are very close to the kingdom of God. And after that, they stopped asking him questions. Mark 12, 35-37 About David's son While teaching in the temple, Jesus asked them, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself, when moved by the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, and I will put your enemies under your feet. Psalm 110, verse 1. David himself calls him Lord. So how can he be David's son? And the crowd of listeners howled with laughter. Mark 12, 38-40. Woes against the scribes and Pharisees. Then he said this, Beware of the scribes, for they like to walk around in fancy robes and be greeted with deference by others. They like to take the best seats, eat the best meals, and even swallow up a poor widow's house, all the while praying like they were holy. They will get what they truly deserve. Mark 12, 41-44, The Widow's Gift Jesus went over to watch people deposit money into the temple treasury, where many of the rich people came and made a great show of how much money they were dropping in the tray. A poor widow came and put in two small coins, about a penny. Jesus called to us and pointed her out among the others. See, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others, for they gave a little out of their abundance, but she has given all that she had to give.
Mark 13, 1-4, the destruction of the temple. When we went out of the temple, someone was looking up at it and remarked, Look at the size of the temple, Lord. Have you ever seen anything so huge? Jesus looked at him and said, Are you impressed? Then be impressed by this. Not one of these stones will be left standing on top of another. Every stone will be thrown down. Mark 13, 5-13 Endings and Beginnings Later, Andrew, James, John, and I were sitting around with Jesus on the Mount of Olives when Andrew suddenly leaned over and asked him, Jesus, when will the stones be toppled? Will there be some great sign before these things start to happen? Then Jesus began to talk to us about the end. You need to be careful that someone does not entice you away from my teachings. Men will come along and claim to be me. I am the one, they will say, and many foolish people will follow them. You will hear of wars, even rumors of wars, but don't let this upset you. People will always go rushing off to war. That is never a sign. There will be lots of wars, lots of misunderstandings and hatred. The earth will be torn apart with earthquakes, and many will perish in famines. And even in that time, we will still be at the beginning of time. You, my friends, must not be deceived or afraid. You will go through hard times, be handed over to the courts and be brought down in the synagogues. You must stand tall in the faith when you go before the kings of this world. You will be my witness to them too. You must preach my message to all the world first. When you go on trial, don't worry about anything because I will be with you. And the moment you open your mouths to speak, I will put my words in you through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he will speak through you. Families will be destroyed because of faith in me. Brother will slay brother, and fathers their children, and children will rise and strike down their parents. You will all be hated because you have followed me. But in the end, you will endure, and you will be saved. Mark 13 14 to 23, the desolating sacrilege. There will be times when you should run away, though, rather than stay and be brave. When you see the altar desecrated with graven images, you must run and hide. It is better to survive those times and run to the hills. Don't even look back, just run for it. If you are on a housetop, just jump off and run. Don't go back for anything. If you're working bareback in the fields, don't even bother to get your shirt. Just run for it. I feel sad for those women who will be pregnant on that day or nursing babies. And you had better pray that it is not in winter because many might not survive. In those times, the suffering will be as if you were living in the days before civilization, as if you were Adam and Eve leaving the garden alone and afraid. God will make those days shorter than most days, or you could not survive them. Be thankful that God is merciful and will shorten the misery of those days, because God has chosen you. You can be confident that he will save you. And if someone thinks they see my hand moving in those days, do not believe them. They will say, see, it is the Lord's doing, or maybe, see, it is a sign from Jesus that he is here. 
they will be trying to lead you astray with false prophecies and omens. So be smarter than they are, more faithful, because I have already told you everything you need to know. Mark thirteen twenty four through 31 The Coming of the Son of Man When the suffering of those days comes, all that you know of this material world will fail to be true anymore. The sun will burn out. The moon will not shine at night. The stars themselves will disappear. And the only thing left will be the things of the Spirit. Then you will see me coming in all the power and glory of heaven. And I will be coming for you, my chosen ones. And my angels will gather you together from the very corners of the earth, the very corners of heaven. Even a fig tree knows what to do when spring comes. It sends out tender new branches. So learn from that. When you see these things happen, you will know that I am near. I will not leave you alone. I tell you this in all truth, my children. You will not be destroyed by these things. This world and all these planets may be destroyed, but my faithful children will preserve my words for all generations and all time. Mark 13, 32-37. Stay alert. Now, as for when to expect all this to happen, I really don't know. Even the angels in heaven don't have a clue when this will happen. Only God, the Father, knows when that day will come. So, stay alert. It could be any time, and no one will know until that very day. It is kind of like a man who leaves his household in the care of his servants. He goes off on his travels, and they have no idea when he will come home. So they keep the house clean, the kitchen stocked, the garden well-groomed, and the watchman keeps a careful lookout for signs that his master is coming. You must be ready and on guard, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. It could be at midnight or midday, at cockcrow or at dawn. Be ready, for the master of this house will come, and you cannot know the day or the hour. You would not want the master to return to his house and find you all asleep. So, stay awake. Mark 14, 1 and 2, The Plot to Kill Jesus It was now only two days before Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. The chief priests and his followers were so upset with Jesus that they were actively looking for a way to kill him without anyone knowing it was them. They knew people adored Jesus, and they said, We cannot kill him during the festival or the people might riot against us. This ends the scripture for today. Tuesday in the Other Gospels Tuesday is the long day in the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow the events of the day almost exactly, often word for word. There are, however, a few minor differences. Luke doesn't explain the fig tree because he didn't use that story. Matthew tells the story of the man with two sons. One talked, the other acted. Both Matthew and Luke tell a story about the wedding feast, where the special guests are too busy to attend, so everyone else gets invited. 
Matthew spends a lot more time woeing the scribes and Pharisees, but omits the story of the widow's gift. Mark ends his discourse in 1337 with So Stay Awake. Matthew and Luke go on a bit more about watchfulness and the wise and faithful servant. Matthew includes the parable of the talents on Tuesday. Luke has already used it earlier in the text. Matthew adds the parable of the ten maidens and a long section on the Last Judgment. Round three. Round one is Sunday. Jesus makes his entrance. The priests defer with closed gates. Round two, Monday. Jesus gets into the outer chamber of the money changers. The priests are aware, but do not confront Jesus. Round three, Tuesday. Jesus finally gets the attention of the priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Let the games begin. Tuesday begins with an awful and yet awesome display. While walking back to Jerusalem, the group again passes the fig tree that was cursed the day before. Now it is dead. Peter is surprised and impressed. Jesus explains that it is a matter of faith. If you believe and if you ask, God will grant it to you. This is a statement that haunts the later passages, especially on the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane. But you must first ask forgiveness. You must humble yourself and ask forgiveness for those you have wronged if you want God to also forgive you. It's also about authority. Entering the temple, the priests are ready for Jesus this time and immediately ask for his credentials. You can almost hear them say, Who do you think you are, coming in here and upsetting commerce and bothering people? Jesus sidesteps that argument and then tells a very pointed story about the wicked tenants. The priests realize that this is about them, and they are very upset. But the crowds loved it, and the priests retreated to consider their next attack. When the priests retreat, the Pharisees see a chance, and they try to get Jesus to upset the Romans. But Jesus again turns the question back on the Inquisitor. Now the Sadducees move into the fray and ask a ridiculous question about the afterlife, even though they do not believe in an afterlife. Another trick question, which Jesus does not fall for, but takes it apart from the premise. Jesus now goes on the attack, pointing out a misunderstanding of Scripture and his own interpretation, which tickles the crowds, who are now really enjoying the show. In the last slap to the scribes, Jesus mocks their extravagant lifestyles, while acting pious and holy. His uplifting the widow and her gift is a further indictment of the contrast of wealth and righteousness. These five encounters with the religious authorities take place in the temple. Eventually, they stop attacking because the crowds are enjoying it entirely too much, so they leave Jesus alone for now. Since the authorities have disengaged again, Jesus takes the disciples out of the temple and up to the Mount of Olives, and the theme shifts to talk about the end of things. In Mark's telling, the impressive temple was talked about here, as they leave it. In Luke, it came as they entered on Palm Sunday. By placing it here, Jesus is finished with it, and it is useless, so it will be destroyed. 
It also introduced Mark's section on Jesus' teaching about the end of his ministry and instructions about how the disciples must handle life without Jesus. Jesus warns against the false prophets and the others who might try to deceive them. He warns of hard times, trials, families torn apart. People will hate them, but they will prevail and endure. Times to come may be so awful it would be better to retreat than to stay and fight. The suffering will be almost unbearable. But God will be with them. Remember all that Jesus has taught them and you will be fine. Everything is lost when even the stars in the sky are gone and only the Spirit remains. Then Jesus will come and gather the faithful into eternity. Finally, what he says is there is no timetable. No one knows when. So be ready all the time. Stay alert. Tuesday is a long day for the disciples and a most confusing day. Beginning with the fig tree, building up to great heights in the confrontations and the besting of the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, until all of them beat a retreat. The uproarious enjoyment of the crowds watching this display fills the disciples with hope that maybe this thing is going to work after all. It is not unreasonable to think Jesus took the disciples up to the Mount of Olives for a picnic lunch. The morning was great. It was intense, and they are exhausted from the past three days. When the discussion turns to the temple being thrown down, Jesus turns the tide of the day. It is not the first time Jesus has talked about his own death, but now it is different. He is talking about leaving them alone to fend for themselves. He does not say here, I will be with you always. He says, I will come for you. But he will come only after every material thing on the planet is gone, the sun and the stars have failed, and the only thing alive is the Spirit of God. Jesus will come and take them home. It is meant to be reassuring. But to the disciples who just had a great victorious morning, the afternoon turned bitterly against them, and they were very confused. Life and Death of August Kleinschmidt The Lesson of the Fig Tree Believe in Prayer Nothing in seminary really prepares clergy for ministry. Everything we are taught is just theory until we must put it into practice. Then we discover how poorly trained we actually are to do this terrifying tightrope that is ministry. This is a story about how I learned about prayer. Mark begins this section on Tuesday with this terrible story about the fig tree, and he says this, Have faith in God, and anything you ask of him will be granted. If you truly believe, then you could even cause a mountain to crumble into the sea. If you ask God for it and truly believe it, you will receive it. I always thought he should have added, Be careful, therefore, what you ask for. I was appointed to the Julian Community United Methodist Church in July of 1975. We moved from the ultra-rich seaside village of La Jolla, where I was the associate pastor for two years. It was a dramatic shift, from sea level to 4,000 feet, from a gorgeous new sanctuary with comfy pews, fabulous choir, air conditioning, new offices, and fancy office equipment, plus a big budget, wonderful staff, state-of-the-art sound system, 
and a set of buildings that stretched down the block, to a small country church set away all by itself off a two-lane state highway, with a sanctuary that doubled as the social hall. It had a Radio Shack sound system, cold metal folding chairs, one very small office, two classrooms and a lounge rummage room, and one staff, me. But Julian was heaven. Even though the congregation had been torn in half by the previous pastor warring with the founding pastor who retired and lived in town, even though the church existed only because the conference paid half the salary, even though there was no parsonage and a sizable debt on the little church building, it was heaven. The people were genuinely happy to have a new young pastor with a beautiful wife who was about to fill the crib room with a child for the first time in years. We were warmly greeted. People invited us into their homes and treated us like family, which we quickly became. One of the first couples to invite me over to meet them in their home were Gus and Thelma Kleinschmidt. They had joined the church some years earlier when they retired due to health problems and found a small house east of town. Gus and Thelma were salt-of-the-earth people. Their garden wouldn't impress the editors of the Ladies' Home Journal, but the produce that came from that small plot of land was incredible. Every few months I would get a call from Thelma to stop by at three the next afternoon. I quickly learned this would be a treat to make my day. Fresh corn, beans, squash, beets, tomatoes would be standing in a bag by the front door as I entered. Tea and toast with the latest jam would be placed on the table as I walked in. They loved their church, and they loved their pastor, and it was my good fortune to be the pastor that got to love them back. Gus was a man of small stature, great girth, and high spirits. He had served in the Kaiser's army during the Great War. A black-and-white photo of a very youthful private in his uniform, complete with spiked helmet, sat on the mantle over the fireplace. He had been captured by the British and spent most of the war in England as a POW. He learned to speak English, and after the war chose not to return to Germany, but managed to get himself on a boat to America. Eventually, he found himself farming in the Mission Valley area of San Diego. He frequently told me he once had a chance to buy the 20 acres of what was then very good farmland and is now a big shopping mall worth millions, but he lacked the $200 to buy it. I could be a rich man now! Yeah, His laughter filled the house as he told the story. One of the first things I did when I got to Julian was to bolster the prayer chain. A pretty good four-part sermon series about prayer and a sign-up sheet on Sunday netted almost all of the church membership. A couple people still didn't have phones. There were rules about prayer requests and how to pass them along, but we would take requests from anyone. People would call and put relatives on other states on the prayer chain. Others would hear about someone in need and call it in. All requests came to me, and I would call the starter, who would call three more, and so it went until everyone was called. After a few years, we began to have a regular influx of people venturing up the mountain to thank us for praying for them and sharing their miraculous healing stories. But we didn't think it was us. God was just being good to them. But then someone started tracking the results of our calls and discovered that if we got people on the prayer chain early, they all recovered. When we heard situations were hopeless and we prayed for a quick, peaceful passing, people passed quickly, within 24 hours. 
I was probably in my fifth year at Julian when I got a call late one afternoon from Thelma. Gus had a heart attack. The volunteer fire department was transporting him down the hill to Mercy Hospital, 60 miles away. It didn't look good. Gus was badly overweight, already in poor health, and this was not his first heart attack. I arrived at Mercy just after the ambulance. I waited with Thelma into the night as they worked on Gus, eventually stabilizing him so that we could see him. When we walked into the room, I thought he must be dead. He looked awful. The doctor said we could see him for a bit, but we should leave soon and let him be. I took Gus's hand. It was cold. He was unresponsive. His skin tone was almost green. In several situations prior to that, when we knew someone was absolutely not going to make it, I would offer to pray that God would take them home quickly and peacefully. Thelma had gotten those calls. She knew it was staring her in the face. As we prepared to leave, I turned to Thelma and asked her what she wanted to pray. She looked right at me and said, I know they think he is dying, but I can't let him go right now. Thelma clutched my hand and continued, We need a miracle. I need you to pray for a miracle so Gus will get well. In truth, I was stunned. I did not think Gus would last even half an hour. But I looked at Thelma, and I looked at Gus. We held hands with Gus, and I said, okay. And we prayed, as fervently as I knew how, for God to give us all a miracle. When I got back home, even though it was past 10, I knew some people would be in bed. I started the prayer chain. I called our starter. We need to pray for a miracle that Gus might get well and come back home. She said, all right, I'll start it right now. When I saw Gus the next day around noon, he was sitting up in bed eating lunch. Delma was by his side beaming like a Cheshire cat. I was so overwhelmed by the power of God at that moment, I thought I would burst. When the doctor stopped by a bit later, he was dumbfounded. I can't explain it, he said. It is nothing short of a miracle. Thelma and I just smiled at each other. Gus died several years later, quietly in his sleep. Never underestimate the power of God to surprise you with love. questions for contemplation. 1. How do you feel about asking God for anything? 2. When have you prayed most fervently for something? How did that work out? 3. Have you ever prayed for something you knew wasn't good for you? How did that work out? 4. Should you talk to friends when you are hungry and angry? Should you talk to God when you are angry? 5. How do you feel about praying for miracles?
prayer for Tuesday. Oh Lord, I don't need you to move mountains. I don't need you to perform miracles. I just need to know that you are with me. Let me feel the power of your love. Let me know how special I am in your eyes. Then I will know the power of goodness and mercy that surrounds me. That is all the miracle I need, but I do need it. Thank you, Lord. Amen.